This past week, I watched a two-hour special on PBS, which was, was on their series called The American Experience. And it's probably one of the most riveting... It's on. It is on. Not my fault. Um, <laughs> for once. Am I good? I wa- anyway, I watched this two-hour special on PBS on The American Experience, and it was... It was, it was interesting. In some ways, it was very disturbing. It was an episode called The Freedom Riders. Uh, and it, was, it, it told the story. In 1960, uh, the Supreme Court issued a decision uh, outlawing racial segregation in the restaurants and waiting rooms of bus terminals uh, that um, served buses that actually crossed state lines. And so it was an attempt to get at these Jim Crow laws and this segregation that was so prevalent Uh, throughout the southern states. They passed this decision, or they made this this ruling, uh, and nothing really changed. So from May to November of 1961, uh, over 400 people, 400 men and women, both black and white, rode buses and trains together in this silent protest, this nonviolent protest uh, of the Jim Crow laws. Uh, They were beaten, buses were burned, uh, it, it was really obscene, the things that happened to them, uh, much of it in the state that I grew up in. So it was very disturbing to me, personally. Uh, but, <clears throat> and you really should watch it. You can find it online on PBS. But in this story, they interviewed from time to time the man who was the governor of Alabama at that time, a man named John Patterson. And, and evidently, he's still alive, or he was when they made this movie. But it got me thinking about another governor of Alabama who's probably a little bit more famous uh, he was well known for his stand uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, a man named George Wallace. Uh, George Wallace is known for his stand in the schoolhouse door saying that black students would not be admitted to the University of Alabama. He's known for his fiery speech where he said, uh, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Uh, he's known for spending the last 20 years of his life in a wheelchair Uh, after an assassination attempt when he was running for president. He ran for president three times. But he's also remembered because he ran for the governorship of Alabama one last time, and he was actually elected in 1982. And in the general election, he received 90% of the black vote. Now that's stunning if you think about who he was and what his politics were like for most of his political career. Um, that this man who had persecuted African Americans in his last run at the governorship would receive 90% of their vote. Uh, John Lewis, you may know, he's a member of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, in Georgia. He was one of the Freedom Riders, and he wrote this about George Wallace. He said, Although we had long been adversaries, I did not meet Governor Wallace until 1979. During that meeting, I could tell that he was a changed man. He was engaged in a campaign to seek forgiveness from the same African-Americans he had oppressed. He acknowledged his bigotry and assumed responsibility for the harm he had caused. He wanted to be forgiven. Uh, George Wallace made this amazing U-turn in his life. He went from persecuting African-Americans to actually being embraced by them. And it really does beg the question, What happened? What happened there? Uh, The book of Galatians, which we're studying, is written by 
a man named Paul. Paul went from persecuting the followers of Jesus to being embraced by them. And it really does beg the question, what happened? Well, let's look at the scriptures today. Galatians 1, yes, Galatians 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Would you pray with me? God, this is your word, and we pray that you would, by your spirit, open it to us, make it known to us, open our hearts, that we might believe it and be changed by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a little reminder, the Apostle Paul, what was he doing? Uh, He had planted churches in Galatia. And he had declared there this message of the gospel that man is made right with God, not by our works, not by what we do, but simply through faith in the person of work of Jesus Christ. After Paul left, these false teachers came in behind him and said, no, Paul doesn't exactly have it right. Not only do you need faith in Jesus Christ, but you also need to do the works of the Mosaic law. You need faith in Jesus, plus you need to keep the law. And the false teachers very likely were saying something along the lines of, Paul, you just got this message from the apostles in Jerusalem and you've twisted it around and messed it up. And this is just not an accurate message that you're proclaiming. And so they were questioning uh, his authority and they were questioning also the message that he was preaching. And so here in chapter 2, Paul says, no, that's not right. You need to understand what actually happened. And so what I want us to do this morning is to look at uh, Paul. I want to look at a before and after picture of Paul and ask the question, well, what did actually happen in the Apostle Paul's life? So first of all, the before picture. Uh, verses 13 and 14 again. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was a religious guy. He was, was, in the eyes of the people of his religion, he was a good guy. He was the honor roll student. He won the Good Citizenship Award. 
He, he was the student of the week. And this, this, was in a, this was in the religious school where he won these awards. He was standing out above everybody else. He bes- behaved himself according to the rules. Uh, he would describe in, in the book of Philippians, if you, if you have a Bible, you might look there. He would describe his former way of life this way in Philippians verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had done everything he was supposed to do in his religion. Uh, he had been circumcised on the eighth day. That's when that was supposed to happen. Check that off. He was of the people of Israel. He wasn't some second-class convert to Judaism. Check that off. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, the tribe that gave Israel its first king, the tribe that stayed loyal to David. Check that off. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews uh, in a day in which Jewish culture had become so uh, polluted and corrupted by Greek culture that many of them no longer even spoke Hebrew. Uh, Paul was schooled uh, in his native tongue and in his native culture and religion. He trained under one of the most famous rabbis of his day. Check that off. As to the law of Pharisee, uh, this is a Jewish sect known as the separated ones. If anybody kept the law, if anybody did what they were supposed to do, the Pharisees did. Check that off. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, uh, he imprisoned Christians He voted for their death. He was a witness to their execution. He took his Judaism seriously. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Or uh, some translations say, as to legalistic righteousness, faultless. Uh, This is somebody that, to every appearance, was a keeper of the law, a keeper of the commandments. If you had grown up Jewish, this was the guy you wanted your daughter to marry. You need to go check out that Apostle Paul. He's a good guy. Um, if he were here today, Paul would be the guy who was baptized as an infant, who grew up in the church, whose family had a plot uh, in the church cemetery for ten generations. Uh, this is the guy who is discipled by the pastor, who taught Sunday school, uh, who was a deacon or an elder in the church. Uh, he wasn't living a dual life. He wasn't one person on Sunday and another person during the week. He was devoted He was devout, he was serious, he worked hard. To all appearances, he was righteous. He did what he was supposed to do. But he had no category for grace. He had no category for grace. Why didn't he need one? You know, when you think about it, I mean, he was was doing all right. He was doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so he hated the people who were preaching the gospel. He hated the people who were talking about this crucified Savior. Why do I need a crucified Savior? None of that made any sense to him. His idea would have been something along the lines of, the beatings will continue until morale improves. All right, uh, that's, that's how we're going to handle things around here. And you people need to straighten up and fly right. Now, um, one of my fears is, is that many of us in the church are in the same boat as the Apostle Paul was prior to his conversion. Well, we're different in one way. We can talk a good grace game. 
we, we maybe can even give the catechism definition for justification by faith. And we would say without a doubt, yes, I'm saved by grace and not by works. But grace doesn't have very much impact on our daily lives. It has no real impact on our daily lives. We're good people. We're the people who work hard. We're the people who say, if it's going to be done right, then I'm going to do it myself. We get frustrated with all the incompetent people around us. We avoid embarrassing moments because we can't handle the thought of failing at anything. We're horrified at the thought of actually needing grace. It's okay theoretically, but we don't want to actually need help. We want to be strong. We're not going to be needy. And so we don't understand all the weak people around us. We don't get all the people who can't keep up and do what they're supposed to do. Jean LaRue tells the story when he was working in a church in Memphis. Uh, He said there was a a young woman on staff there who was getting frustrated with him. She said, you know, I hear you preaching grace, uh, and then then yet I kind of look at you and I think, well, I'm a better person than he is. I've got my act together more than he does. And yet you're happier than I am. And I'm angry about that. And I want to I understand this, this grace stuff. And so uh, they sat down and talked. And he told her, uh, the first thing you need to do in order to get grace is to quit trying to get grace. And so she took out her notebook and wrote down, the first thing I need to do is to stop trying to get grace. And he said, no, 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 this isn't something you can write down on your checklist and do on Monday and Tuesday. Stop trying to get grace. Uh, He said, here's what it is. Your understanding of grace is going to be driven by your experience of grace. And so she started writing down, your understanding of grace is going to be driven by your experience. And he stopped her again. He's getting frustrated with her. He said, look, if you want to get grace... Then go out of here today and get pregnant. Uh, and spend the next nine months not going to a different church, but keep coming to this church. And keep coming to all the same Sunday school classes and small groups that you've been going to for your whole life. And listen to everybody gossiping about you and talking about you in the halls. And every time you feel ashamed, remember Zephaniah 3.17, and, and we'll read this later, And imagine Jesus singing over you in delight. And she said, are you serious? Is that what you want me to do? He said, no. But if you did, you'd get it. You'd get grace. You'd have public, scandalous sin that you couldn't hide, that you couldn't clean up, and you couldn't work off. And you'd be left with nothing else but Jesus. See, many of us, don't get grace and we don't show grace because we don't see how much we need grace. And so we're much like the Apostle Paul, zealous to do good and to work hard and to bring God glory. But we've got no category, no experience with grace. That's his before picture. After picture, and we'll be quick with this, Uh, verse 23 said, He who used to persecute us, the one who used to persecute us, 
is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 2 Corinthians 11. This, this is where that got Paul, all right? He, he preached the faith he once tried to destroy, and this is what happened because of that. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's what happened in Paul's life after he began to preach, after he began to preach the gospel of free grace. Um, not only was he preaching the gospel of grace, he was undergoing persecution because of it. Now, think what would have happened to Osama bin Laden if he had converted to Christianity before his death and said, you know what, I'm going to stick around in Pakistan and share the gospel with people. Okay, he wouldn't have been the most popular guy around. Paul, the Pharisee, the keeper of the law, is now preaching the gospel uh, at risk to his own life. He's preaching the gospel that man is made right with God, not by keeping the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Before, after. What happened? What happened? Uh, the false teacher said, well, here's what happened, Paul. You just got this message from the apostles. You twisted it around, and you've messed everything up. Your message isn't from God. And Paul's going to great lengths here in this section of the text to say, this message is from God. I didn't get this message from the apostles. Look, after I was converted, I didn't see any of the apostles for three years. And then when I finally did talk to Peter, I was only there for 15 days, and I didn't see anybody but him and James, and I didn't get this message from the churches in Judea either. I didn't, I didn't get this from somebody. I received this from God. Verse 12, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, God set me apart before birth. God called me by His grace. Verse 16, God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Paul wants them to see that he's been changed by God, that he's been given this message by God, that he's encountered the risen Lord Jesus, and that's what changed everything. Acts chapter 9. Now remember, Paul, he even gets a name change. Before he was converted, his name Saul. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting to me? Persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Where we get our phrase, a Damascus Road experience. Paul has a living encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that changes 
everything. And he's telling the Galatians, look, God called me. God pursued me. God changed me. God caught me. God has been gracious to me. God has called me to preach this gospel of grace to others. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Jesus pursued me and changed me and called me to preach this message so that now people whom I once persecuted are glorifying God because of this message I am proclaiming. I'm not the same man I was anymore. I got this from God. God changed me. I mentioned George Wallace uh, earlier. George Wallace, in addition to being the uh, the governor of Alabama, he also ran for president three times. Uh, After losing the third time, he returned to the state of Alabama. And one man said this, that he had this kind of period of reflection. and, And what he did was, one by one, he picked up the telephone and he started calling his old enemies, the people who he had used as kind of punching bags in the 60s, and asked for their forgiveness. One of those people he talked to is a man I mentioned earlier, John Lewis, now a congressman, once a freedom writer, also a man he was beaten uh, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama in 1965. Lewis wrote this in an op-ed to the New York Times after George Wallace died. He said, with all his failings, Mr. Wallace deserves recognition for seeking redemption for his mistakes for his willingness to change and to set things right with those he harmed and with his God. What happened? What happened to him? Uh, Wallace professed to have, been, have been become a born-again Christian, and this is what changed his life and his political stance. And this is why he's, he sought reconciliation with all these people who he had wronged. Some people question that conversion. Uh, he was a man who in his early days had actually been for the civil rights movement. And then when he saw that wasn't going to work, he decided he was going to be against the civil rights movement. And now he was changing again. And so some people questioned whether that was a genuine conversion or not. And I don't, I don't know him. I have no idea. Um, but I think it's a legitimate question to ask. When you see somebody make that kind of a U-turn in their life, um, what was he gaining by such a sudden change in direction? See, people were suspicious. Some of them were suspicious of his conversion because they said, well, look what he's gaining by now turning around and going in the other direction. So let's ask that question of the Apostle Paul then. What was the Apostle Paul gaining by his sudden change in direction. I mean, look, look at who he was. Remember who he was. He's the Jewish poster boy. He's the guy who everybody wants to marry. He's the commandment keeper. He's looked up to in his community. He's thought well of. And what does he gain by this change of direction? Did he gain power? Did he gain standing? No, he was rejected. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He, he throws his lot in with a group of people who are following what everybody else says is a dead savior. And so he goes from being practically worshipped by his community to being despised by them. The Jews hated him now. The Romans hated him now because he was causing problems for them as well. And yet he says, you know what, I'm, I'm giving up on me. I'm giving up on my record of achievements. 
and I'm going to stand on the record of Jesus Christ. He had absolutely nothing to gain by this U-turn in his life, and he had everything to lose. Listen, he would have been the least likely person to come up with salvation by grace. Because he, he didn't seem to really need it. I mean, if like some wild child prodigal kid had come up with it, we, we would all say, oh, well, yeah, sure, he comes up with this. That's awfully convenient now. But Paul didn't really seem to need this. He didn't need grace. He was a great guy in his mind and everybody else's mind as well. It's a very dramatic conversion. It's a conversion that only God could bring about. And it does bring to mind the religious terrorist being confronted by Jesus and changed. Because it is what happened. Uh, But I think sometimes we focus on that aspect of it so much that we sort of write Paul off as this example for other people who are really bad because I'm not that bad. I'm not killing Christians. I've been a Christian my whole life. I was baptized as an infant. My family has a plot in the church cemetery. I was discipled by the pastor. I listened to Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul, for goodness sakes. I taught Sunday school. I can explain justification by faith. You know what led Paul to be a persecutor of the church? It was his rightness. It was his righteousness that enabled him to kill. It was his pride at the center of his being. It was his confidence in his own good works that made him despise the message of grace. They despise the message of grace. And you know what changed with the Apostle Paul? It wasn't just that he quit killing people, although he did. Um, you remember... That long list of Paul's qualifications we read earlier, we've rehashed here a couple of times. Uh, listen to what Paul says about his list of credentials after he meets Jesus. What he thinks about his former way of life. Now this is from Philippians 3 also. And this is actually from the message uh, translation. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by Him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. See, what really changed with the Apostle Paul was that he gave up his righteousness. He gave up his righteousness, and he he threw it in the trash. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, have you given up your righteousness? Have you given up your righteousness? Have you come to the place where you realize that all you have to offer God is your sin and Jesus? Have you come to the place where you realize that all you have to offer to your neighbors is your sin and Jesus? When you do that, 
you'll quit telling everybody around you to repent, and instead you'll become the biggest repenter that anybody knows. I want to, I'm going to steal one more story from John Larry this morning. He tells uh, the story of a sister he had, uh, and she wasn't a believer, and for 10 years he kept telling her, you need to straighten up and get right with Jesus in so many words. He said he could point out all the wrong things she had done. He could point out all of her sins. He told her continuously how much she needed Jesus. And she was sick of it. She was sick of hearing all about her sin from him. He said he was a great spell checker of her life. Um, Finally, one day, uh, he sensed God working on him. That God was telling her, you know, instead of telling her how much she needs Jesus, why don't you tell her how much you need Jesus? And so he says he sat down and he started writing a letter, it was an eight-page later letter, uh, repenting for his own self-righteousness, repenting for the way he had judged her, uh, telling her things about himself, sins he had committed that she knew nothing about because he had kept them well hidden and ask her to forgive him. And he told her, I'm sorry, and I know Jesus forgives and loves me, and he wanted me to send this to you. Uh, He says she called him, uh, and after a string of profanity, she said, you're awesome. You You are awesome. Thank you for showing me for the first time in my life what it means to believe in Jesus, what it looks like to trust Jesus, what it looks like to need Jesus. He says a few years later, she came to faith in Christ. And if you ask her the first time she tasted grace, it wasn't when he was preaching at her all those years. It was when he sat down and wrote her that letter. When for the first time she saw a brother who was believing the gospel for himself instead of telling it to her. See, here's what your neighbors need and your spouse needs and your siblings need and your children need the main thing it's not our advice uh, it's not our preaching it's not 20 steps to avoid evil it's not 50 keys to a christian worldview or any of that what they need is for you to introduce them to the real you Uh, the you that was yelling at the kids this morning because you couldn't get out the door to get to church on time the you that kicks the dog three times a week for no good reason. Uh, that you. They need to see you repenting of your sin and your righteousness. They need to see that you need Jesus. They need to see you stumbling and failing badly at times, but walking by faith in Christ. Your neighbors, the people in your life, need to see you give up on your own righteousness. They need to see me give up on my own righteousness. And you need to give up on your own righteousness for you. Because until you do that, you're never going to experience the freedom promised to us in this gospel of grace. As long as we're clinging to our own righteousness, we'll never know the freedom of God's goodness and grace to us in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, would you um, 
show us ourselves and, and show us the ways we still try to construct a righteousness for ourselves. Show us the ways we um, beat other people up. Uh, help us, Father, to trust in Jesus enough to be honest about who we really are. Help us to show people not why they need Jesus, but to show them why we desperately need Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.